0: Hi, welcome to the Edinburgh Space Data Capital podcast. I'm Kim McAllister.
1: And I'm Murray Collins, DDI Chances Fellow and Space Lead at the Bay Centre. How are you doing, Kim? You'd be so proud of me, Murray. Ah, right. How did you get on with your challenge of last week?
0: So I went onto the Sentinel Hub EO browser.
1: Did you really? Okay. I did.
0: And I searched for somewhere that I recognised. So I went for Scotland and I went for the Isle of Arran off the West Coast. Brilliant. And I, yep. I looked at the Sentinel data, which goes back to 2015, and I did a time lapse of Arran over the last five years.
1: That's amazing. <laughs> did, he, did he find it easy? You're so shocked, aren't you? <laughs> what? Well, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. But as I said, I mean, there's an increasing number of tools which make it easier than ever before to access this data. So that's brilliant. That's great to hear.
0: Yeah, it was really um, difficult to find ones that hadn't been obscured by cloud, because obviously there's a lot of cloud in the West of Scotland. But then I thought, if I look at the Landsat data, it goes back to 1976. So I thought, ooh, a time lapse over 30, 40 years would be even better. But I've not quite figured that out yet. That's my next challenge.
1: Okay. That's that's a fun one to do, actually, because you can see in some areas of the world changed massively in the past few decades.
0: And because I am now beginning to become a bit of a geek for space, I'm exceptionally excited about this episode because we're going into <laughs> out, outer space with this one, aren't we? Yeah,
1: well, I, I think you're already there as a geek for space. That's That ship has already sailed long ago. That ship um, took off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that ship has blasted off. Yeah, so we've had these past few weeks talks about... Uh, earth observation a lot so looking down on earth but the space and satellite sector is really really much broader than that the other major half I suppose is looking out into the universe and so in this podcast I thought it'd be really interesting if we get to meet a couple of our more deep space scientists so we've got Colin Snodgrass who's one of my peers and another DDI Chancellor's Fellow but also Charles Cockell, who's an astrobiologist uh, and looks at life in extreme environments so <laughs> this is this is entirely different to what we've discussed previously certain wouldn't wouldn't claim it to be my area of expertise but it's utterly fascinating i mean charles considers and writes about issues such as the place of life in the in the universe and so it's going to be a fascinating episode and takes us off into an entirely different place
0: And you know what? I had no idea that all this was happening in Edinburgh. I I was beginning to understand about Earth observation because you and I have been working together for a couple of years now. But I had no idea that we were actually not just part of space missions, but designing them. Like Colin is actually a lead on this next deep space mission called Comet Interceptor.
1: Yeah, that's right. And we have this extraordinary expertise in Edinburgh. And I think across Scotland as well. I mean, there's a lot of expertise in, in Glasgow, uh, Dundee Satellite Station, and then we're developing these new launch sites. And it's one of those things which very, very few people still know about. And then particularly in Edinburgh, the fact, that, as you say, we've got people doing astrobiology and landing probes on comets. I mean, it. It's something which we should chat about more and uh, I think it's a fantastic opportunity to discuss it through this podcast.
0: Definitely. So let's let's dive straight in. Let's chat to Colin Snodgrass and find out more.
2: I'm Colin Snodgrass, I'm a Chancellor's Fellow in data-driven innovation in space and satellite stream and in particular i work in astronomy and in looking out and looking at space and i work on comets and asteroids and so my my involvement with space and satellite is that i'm involved with space missions with european space agency in particular
0: that's what people think of when they think of space isn't it what we're exploring out there so what are you looking for or what is your research
2: 10 years ago now or so I got involved with the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission, which was a mission which uh, orbited a comet and actually was the first mission to send a lander down to land on the surface of a comet. So, a few years ago, we had lots of excitement with actually landing on the surface of a comet. Get, getting involved with doing space missions and talking to people that build actual hardware and, and do space missions is that my, re- my research has gone more in that direction now. Um, And now I'm a deputy PI on a new ESA comet mission called Comet Interceptor, which will launch in 2028.
0: And you're going to land on another comet?
2: This one's going to fly past a comet. Um, So this one is a a, a smaller class of mission than Rosetta. Rosetta was a, a flagship thing that cost billions. This one is a relatively cheap missions, only 150 million uh, euros, you know.
0: That's in three of them.
2: Exactly. Um, in fact, it actually does. Uh, oh, there so, we go. <laughs>
0: um,
2: so this is actually a mission that will do a fast flyby of a comet. So it can't, it we can't do, we can't land, and we don't actually have the enough, well, mass, really. So the, the cost is all comes down to how much you can launch into space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a relatively small mission. It has a relatively small amount of fuel. We can intercept a comet i.e. put ourselves in the right place of space for a comet to come shooting past us but we can't match speeds with it or slow down and land and so on but yeah, I said actually it does have three spacecraft the neat thing about this one and what is new that we haven't done with missions before is that it's actually made of three separate spacecraft so it has a main kind of mothership that that flies past the comet at a reasonably safe distance and then it has a couple of small probes that are kind of this CubeSat scale these kind of things that have been developed now for Earth orbit really small satellites it has a couple of probes that it releases as it flies past the comet that gets sent really close to go and get you know the the kind of the really up close view of the comet and go into the the really kind of dangerous close approach because a comet is you know dust and gas flying off of it and we're going past at really high speeds um so it's quite a it's not an environment you'd like to send a spacecraft into so the idea is we have our our more or less uh, disposable probes that we we throw at it as we go past.
0: And what are you looking for on the comet? What does it help you understand about life or the universe?
2: So the the neat thing with this is that it's to go to uh, a very new comet coming into the inner solar system for the first time. So the missions that we've done before, including Rosetta, which was an amazing thing and got us all this data, but we've only previously been able to send spacecraft to comets that we know reasonably well. So these have short periods, they orbit the sun every... So six years or so in the case of Comet 67P, Jeff Jeffersomenko, Ger- which is the one Rosetta went to, or even Halley, which is you know seventy odd years orbit. That's still a short period comet the idea with this one is we go to one that's really coming in from the very edge of the solar system for the very first time this thing has not seen the heat of the sun since the planets formed billions of years ago so it's a really kind of leftover remnant from that period when the planets were forming it's one of the leftover building blocks
0: that's incredible like so where has it been
2: so there's a, there's a cloud of comets at the very edge of our solar system called the Oort cloud. And this is where long period comets come from. So some of the most spectacular comets, if you ever see one that kind of lights up the night sky and you see with the naked eye, that we get maybe once a decade or so. And those tend to be these long period comets. They tend to be these things that have come in from the very edges of our solar system. This, this cloud goes out halfway to the next star. It's a, a vast, vast distances away. Way beyond anywhere where we could send the spacecraft out there. So instead what we do is we wait around until a comet comes into us. And yeah, the neat thing with Comet Interceptor is that actually we're designing the space mission now and we're potentially even launching it before we know what the target is. Wow. So it actually gets launched in space, it waits around in space for a while until we see a good comet coming our way and then we, we go and fly past it.
0: So what do you think you'll find out from this comet?
2: What we'd really like to see is, is what comets look like kind of before they have before they, they are heated by the sun. So one of the things we learned with Rosetta is that actually you get a lot of, of evolution of changes of the surface. Even in the two years that Rosetta was orbiting its comet, some of the surface eroded away, other places stuff rained back down, there were a lot of changes. So you weren't seeing the kind of, uh, the really kind of pristine bits that were laid down at the, you know, when the planets were forming. Whereas if we go to a brand new comet, then we're seeing surfaces that haven't changed in billions of years. Wow! So it's it's really trying kind to of, yeah it's kind of it's this blue sky stuff. It's, the it's how amazing. do planets form? It's for getting yeah. into that. Um, it, the thing is, it does have you know it's it's very much this kind of you know science for science's sake, trying to understand the big pictures and how do planets form. Um, but the neat, it does have some nice kind of ties into like uh, the data driven innovation and the and the kind of more. Linking with industry and how we can use science for, for commerce and things like that. Partially because we're using these new kind of CubeSats, we're using these very small satellites. And this is a kind of technology that is, is really up and coming now. It's something that there are companies around Edinburgh working on. Um, within. So there's the Higgs Centre for Innovation, which is part of the, the Royal Observatory where I'm based. This is a partnership between the university and uh, various national labs and space agencies. And that include that's an incubation centre. It has some companies there working on base on technology, on building bits of hardware for space. And they tend to be working on this small scale, on these, you know, CubeSats. Um, the idea behind CubeSats is that these are things that are very, the cube refers to a 10 centimetre by 10 centimetre by 10 centimetre cube and then you build satellites out of combining these cubes together. So you get like a three unit cube or a six unit cube or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea is because it has a very standardized form, you can buy off the shelf parts and, you know, instead of redesigning a spacecraft completely from scratch, which is what you do for most main big missions. Mm -hmm. The idea is that it's really a cheaper kind of faster way to do space because you can just say, okay, well, I need solar panels. I'll take them from this Store and I need, you know, a radio, and it comes from here.
0: Just and go to the satellite shop. You go to the satellite
2: <laughs> shop. Get all the bits you need. Plug it into a standard-sized box.
0: You make it sound so simple. Like that. <laughs>
2: um, and just, so, it's just launch. That's a bit of a challenge. And then you know exactly, it's a little bit of challenge launching them, but it's also you know, it, it's it, there's this whole kind of new space uh, culture around this idea of you can build much smaller things that are capable satellites, and you can launch you know ten of them at a time because they're very small, and you can do. Uh, lots of other approaches like that. And so there's a kind of a link there with the using this kind of miniaturised technology and for the first time using it in really deep space because this is not something that people normally do.
0: This is amazing. And how does this compare with what else? I mean, this is a fabulous mission that you're involved with, Bring you know, this... Comet that may or may not be coming our way in 2020. Is this a European mission or is this a worldwide mission? So, So
2: this is led by a European Space Agency. So it's primarily a European mission, although actually we have partners all over the world. So of the two small probes that are released, one is also built by the European Space Agency along with the main mothership. The other one is built by the Japanese Space Agency.
0: Are there students working with you? Is the university involved? Like, what is the role of the university? Well,
2: at the moment, it's quite an early stage. So we only actually, you know, this mission was only approved last year. Um, at the moment, we're still working with the European, European Space Agency to define it all and to, to figure out the engineering and to figure out that how will it work and designing it. And it, it's just going into this sort of phase A period when we'll work with um, space industry to design it in more detail. So the moment that this is mo- my role in the leadership of that is is mostly just me, but there are also going to be students and postdocs and others who will get an opportunity to work with this as we go forward. So it's very new, but it's. Uh, it's something that we hope to expand upon it but in an
0: eight-year project so potentially people who are now at high school could be involved in it if they decide to come and study this yeah area. i
2: mean it's it's yeah it's it's going to be 2028 20, uh, at least before we launch as if we launch on time and these things are occasionally delayed um, and then it's up to sort of five six years after that before we'll actually encounter. The, Encounter the comet. So the, the time scales of doing your space missions are quite long. Right. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you could be in high school now and still mm. coming and studying and doing this in Edinburgh in the future. And-
0: that's so exciting because I'm sure you know when I was a child and I looked up at the sky, you just the possibilities were endless and you just well I certainly never thought I could be working on something like this. So I just think it's so inspiring. You must love talking about what you do. Yeah, I mean it is.
2: It's really good fun talking all about this. And one of the really nice things we had with the Rosetta mission was that there was this uh, there was this whole series of cartoons to describe what Rosetta was doing that were you know primarily for explaining this to kids for but they were great and they, you know all of the scientists working the mission they love these cartoons we use the cartoons whenever we we're doing scientific talks on it because the people doing these cartoons at ESA were actually you know they were really talking to the scientists and so although it was kind of this cartoon version of the spacecraft all of the kind of science in it the details were quite right and so you could actually use it to describe it and I was chatting with the the lady who produce these cartoons, we were kind of hitting on the idea of well actually you might have some kid who saw the Rosetta cartoon at school and went I really want to go and work in space and work on comets and actually the timescales are right that you could have been inspired by this cartoon and end up doing your PhD on Comet Interceptor, you know, and that that is
0: That idea is
2: just brilliant. It's wonderful.
0: And I don't, I certainly don't feel like people realise you can do this in Scotland. There's this kind of perception that you must go and work for NASA, but you don't at all.
2: Not at all. You know, this is really, I mean, it says this is, it's jointly, this whole project is jointly led by by here and by a colleague of mine who works in London. And that's, and so it's a UK led uh, mission with people all over the world. But yeah, there's people working on it here. There's people all over the place.
0: That's so exciting.
2: There's all sorts of things. I mean, this, this is, uh, funnily enough, taking up quite a lot of my time.
0: I imagine so, um,
2: yes. But yeah, part of the, you know, the, the other aspects of the things that we're doing is trying to link together this looking out, this looking at comets and asteroids or looking at other planets, this sort of the, the astronomy side, linking that back to uh, some of the other stuff that's done in Edinburgh, the Earth observation, looking down using space data to, to look at the Earth. And there's some overlap in the technology, as I said, with these, these CubeSats and having um, some of the same technology you can develop for going into to, to go to look at a comet you could use on Earth. Uh, and so that's one of the areas I'm interested in, is how we, how we kind of link that back, how we kind of use either the same techniques or the same you know, data analysis or the same technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I'm beginning to explore more with people at Edinburgh who are interested in that.
0: So Colin Snodgrass, just like Carney who was in a previous episode, is one of your peers, a Chancellor's Fellow for the DDI programme. Why is Space and Satellite getting such a push as part of this programme?
1: Uh, yeah, OK, we probably haven't actually made that clear, have we? So we're in the midst of what's called the Edinburgh and City Region Deal, which is this major stimulus package for the region. And Edinburgh University's contribution to this, along with Harriet Watt, is what's called the Data Driven Innovation Programme. And this is built up around these five key pillars of talent. So teaching people, developing new research developing adoption projects, which is effectively, it's like technology transfer to create new jobs, new products and services in the region, but then building up new data sets, which enable us to do new research and also enable companies to develop new products and services. And the, uh, the final one entrepreneurship is helping spin up new companies, helping students and staff to create new enterprises. And so there are ten key sectors which are being addressed, and space and satellites is one of those ten key sectors. And that's why I talk about the base centre. That's the home for space and satellites in that in that context. So it's a really exciting future, I think, for the city and for the university's role within that.
0: And how many Chancellors Fellows are there?
1: Uh, in the first cohort of DDI Chancellors Fellows, there are thirty. Um, and so Incari, Colin and I, are the first three in space and satellites.
0: Murray and I have just had a very interesting webinar, haven't we?
1: We have indeed, with uh, the team at the Houston Spaceport. But what I found was really fascinating from that webinar, actually, was this proposition to develop a uh, low-Earth orbit commercial space station. That sounds fantastic. So we're going to hear more about what's going on in Houston and uh, the Rice Space Institute when we have Dr. David Alexander OBE coming on the show in a following podcast. So I'm really looking forward to that.
0: Another but superstar. The, uh,
1: another superstar. Exactly. Maybe this is surprising for a lot of people. Everyone I know who's listened so far. I know actually But one thing I was going to say to you is that we should give a shout out to our, to our super fan in is he in Rome, who says he's, yep. he wrote to you on Twitter and he said he's already listened 10 times to every episode? <laughs> yeah, we like him. <laughs> <laughs> but he is, he is by definition. <laughs> we like him. Uh, it's an international endeavour. And certainly here in, in Scotland, we have people from all around the world coming to study here, coming to teach here, open businesses here. And we're going to hear from Orbital Microsystems, a company which came from Bouldering, Colorado, to open offices in Edinburgh. So it's this international endeavour, Right here in Edinburgh, we have some absolute superstars. And that's why it's and an utter privilege to have people like Colin and then of course Charles coming on, Professor Charles Cockell, who it's not really my area of expertise at all, but utterly fascinating. So looking at life in extreme environments, astrobiology. I think these are the kind of people which continue and will continue to bring students and Uh, international research funds into the city so what an exciting time for the sector
0: absolutely i mean the chance to come and study with someone like professor coquel is just incredible and even just to hear what he says even if you don't work in space you can't fail but be inspired by it particularly right now when we're all looking for a little bit of light in the darkness aren't we so here is our star of the show professor charles coquel
3: I'm Charles Coquel. I'm Professor of Astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh.
0: And I don't know what to ask you first, whether I should ask you about your time at NASA or your time exploring the Antarctic, or maybe about (laughs) that time when you crashed a plane when you were looking for moths (laughs) in Indonesia. I mean, where will we start? (laughs) Tell me about NASA, first of all.
3: Yeah, well, well, NASA was, I went and did my postdoctoral position there after my PhD. And it was for me the connection of biology and space. So from a very young age, I was interested in natural history. I inherited a moth collection from my grandfather, Victorian moth collection, which was fantastic. And I always had a fascination with biology, but I also had a fascination with space from a very young age. I remember, you know, six, seven, eight, around then, I used to give um, lectures to my sisters about astronomy and bore them stiff. And it was always very difficult to connect biology with space. There were no formal positions in exobiology or astrobiology, didn't really exist then. When I finished my PhD, I got a postdoctoral position at NASA Ames Research Center in Northern California after pestering them for about two years because I decided I was going to do that no matter what and and eventually got my position. But that was an opportunity for me to indulge this connection of biology and space sciences. And it also happened to be the time at NASA when the NASA Astrobiology Institute was set up in the mid nineties and this subject area became more mainstream, more universities were setting up positions. So in some sense it was very good timing because it put me um, right in the centre of all that activity when it began and it allowed me ultimately to carry on uh, building a career that connects biology with space.
0: It's just fascinating. So how would you, for a a beginner like myself who is not a scientist, how would you connect biology and space?
3: Yeah that's a really good question. There's two aspects to it. One is understanding life on our own planet and how it fits in with the rest of the universe is fascinating stuff that we find on our planet that grows and reproduces that we call life is it a phenomenon of the earth only or could we find it elsewhere in the universe so it's a fascinating question to find whether there is life elsewhere in the universe And it can all get very easily caught up with you know the search for aliens and extraterrestrial intelligence but actually in a broader context It's just the question, is this very unusual matter that we find on the Earth that's so fascinating on other planets as well? So that's part of it. It's trying to understand life on our own planets. And my research is very much focused on looking at microorganisms in extreme environments, in volcanic environments and deep underground and in asteroid craters and trying to understand how microbial life adapts to these extremes and ultimately what that might tell us about the habitability of other planets. And then the other aspect of this is using biology to advance the human exploration settlement of space. Whatever we want to do in terms of cleaning up our spacecraft, microbes are going to come with us when we go into space, whether we like it or not. So another way to think about biology going out into space is to ask the question, how can we use biology to help us? And last year, we flew an experiment to the International Space Station that I had been planning for 10 years called BioRock which was to look at the growth of microbes on basalt rock, which makes up most of the moon and Mars, and see whether we can use microbes to extract economically useful elements. And in fact, we were able to demonstrate for the first time the biological extraction of rare earth elements, which are used in microelectronics and other devices from lunar and Martian analog material on board the International Space Station in microgravity and simulated Martian gravity. So we're really interested in using microbes to advance human space exploration and settlement as well as our other planets habitable to life.
0: And how did that go then when you were trying to grow them on the rock? What were the results? It went very
3: well. We built an apparatus over many years with Kaiser Italia and they developed hardware for space experiments. And then we launched it to the International Space Station with SpaceX in August last year, which is all really exciting. Go and see an experiment you spent 10 years on, you know, in a rocket going up into space. And it went to Space Station and Luca... Uh, Pomitano, one of the astronauts who's now come back, was looking after our experiment and he ran the whole experiment and we had microbes growing on rocks and they grew for three weeks and then we analysed all the rocks and the fluid they were in after they came back to the earth about four weeks later. But things have got a lot quicker. We're flying again in November and this time we're replacing our basalt rock with asteroid with pieces of meteorite and we're going to be looking at asteroid mining using microbes. So I, I should say this is not... Just
0: exploded. I can't, <laughs> I can't even imagine that that's even possible. And that must be so exciting for you. Like you say, 10 years in the planning. How did you feel when it finally was sent up to the space station?
3: I was, well, I was sort of excited, but I, strangely enough, I was more relieved. It's like, oh, finally, <laughs> we've got this thing done. I mean, it wasn't like I was fed up with it, but it was a long time and it was good to see it finally done. And there's a certain excitement in putting these experiments together, but there does come a point at which you simply want to get it launched and get it done and move on to the next thing. So it was good to get it done and it it was successful and it was tremendously exciting. I think doing, for me at least, doing anything that contributes towards human space exploration, um, particularly permanent settlement of space, is just tremendously exciting. And I don't know why, but for some reason, it really flips the switch in my imagination and being involved in that. If I could get in a time machine and go back to my seven-year-old self and say, by the way if you could look in a crystal ball you'll be launching experiments to the space station and preparing for things like mining in space and trying to understand life in extreme environments i probably couldn't have been happier so i i i can't you know I, there's there's no other Thing i would rather be doing right now it is very exciting
0: you're in your elements sounds like
3: yes yes
0: and you're involved with so many amazing missions i don't know what to ask you about first but let's talk about mars how close are we to actually visiting mars
3: i think we're still some way off from sending humans uh, the depressing reality is that throughout my whole life so far humans were going to land on Mars 10 years in the future. It's always been 10 (laughs) years in the future. I remember at school reading about bases on Mars in the late 80s, and I really thought I would be on Mars then. Having said that, things are changing with private spaceflight, uh, SpaceX and Blue Origins. So the environment for building rockets and sending people to Mars is getting better. But of course, Mars is still a long way away, even compared to the moon. And seeing private astronauts on the moon will be quite a big leap, and that may take some time. So I think Mars will take even longer, but, but my view is that these things are inevitable. Um, it will happen at some point, whether it's 10 years or 50 years, it's going to happen. And so any contribution to that is still a worthwhile endeavor. It's just a bit sad if you don't see it yourself, but that's not really what I'm in this for. It's more to contribute towards a, a greater vision of civilization moving out into space. So I think it will happen. In the meantime, there are robotic missions to Mars to look for life and to understand that environment. Generally, we still don't know whether Mars had or has life, but we do know that it's a planet that had habitable conditions, the right conditions for life. It's just a question of whether there was life there to take advantage of it. And that's very exciting, at least it is to me. I suspect it's less exciting to the public because even if we find life, it will just be microbes. It's not going to be talkative aliens. And I think that if we find microbes, people will be probably excited for a month or two and then they'll just shrug their shoulders and say, okay, so there's bacteria or bacteria-like things on Mars. Who cares? But, but it would be a big advance in biology to find to find life or evidence of life elsewhere. But even if we found no life on Mars or no evidence for life in all the places we looked, that would still be a staggering discovery, in fact, to find a planet That was very much like Earth in its early history, but remained completely sterile while the Earth became covered in a vast and productive biosphere. I often say in some sense, it would be more staggering and more exciting to find no life on Mars than to find evidence of it. Because in fact evidence of life on Mars is what we would expect given the conditions there.
0: I totally agree. I think philosophically as well to know that we are not alone, even if that is just a microbe on a different planet, I, I still think that has huge consequences for the way we perceive ourselves,
3: surely. Yeah, it is a big question philosophically. And I think that's what's one of the reasons why I find astrobiology so interesting, because it asks these questions that impinge on our civilization and, and this matter that we call life particularly affects that view of our world because we do wonder are we the only representatives of this matter and particularly intelligent representatives of this stuff in the universe and I I, I, it's, it's often been said that you know are we alone in the universe the answer to that question is terrifying either way because if the answer is yes we are alone then you then wonder why we've spent the last 10,000 years building a civilization. Is it just so that we can be lonely in greater luxury? Mm. I mean, what, what's all this about? What, what is our purpose the next 10,000 years if there's no one else to talk to? Where do we see our greater context of the universe? If we do find life somewhere else, uh, that's sort of terrifying in the sense that, you know, what is this other life? Is it just simple microbial life, which means we might still be the only intelligence, at least in our near neighborhood, But if there is other intelligence then what's the nature of that intelligence and what happens if we make contact with it so i agree i think are we alone in the universe is a very profound question and it's profound not just scientifically but in terms of the way we view ourselves And in fact, the way we view our purpose for the next few thousand years.
0: Yeah, this is the wonderful thing about exploring all the elements of space at Edinburgh University is that you can't just explore it in isolation. You always end up in other disciplines, don't you? And it's really great at the university that you do all work together and you are all part of the same team, as it were.
3: Yes, that's true. And Edinburgh has a very good critical mass in many areas. So it's quite easy to make contact with good people and good groups working in different areas. I'd also say there's a history of this. It's wonderful being in a university that's in a city that was the seat of much of what happened during the Enlightenment, not just the Scottish Enlightenment, but globally as well. So this city has a history of what today we would call interdisciplinary thinking. I think in the 18th <laughs> century, it was just normal. <laughs> People thought about different ideas. People call themselves natural philosophers, not just uh, scientists. But it's But I think it's a good environment to try and build up um, the modern version of this which is things like space exploration, um, astrobiology, all the other sciences these days from biophysics to neurobiology or whatever else it is that connects different subject areas and it's right that Edinburgh should consider itself to be a leader in doing this and making these connections because that's its rightful heritage. And it should, I think, advance that and take some sort of pride in its history and realize that the enlightenment isn't finished. And some of these questions like, uh, are we alone in the universe do cut across philosophy and science and fit within this, uh, this heritage of a university like Edinburgh. So I think it's exciting. I think it's a great place to be doing this and particularly the growing interest in space exploration.
0: Absolutely and obviously the title of our podcast is Edinburgh Space Data Capital. Do you feel like that's something Edinburgh could achieve?
3: Yeah I'm less of a um, you know big data person, I'm more of a biologist Uh, but the big data is where the you know the immediate practical implications are. People sitting in the Scottish government can understand the economic benefits of that so I think it is important that the underlying core of a lot of this of course has economic benefits and there's no reason why data shouldn't be one of the focuses of space effort in Edinburgh and why Edinburgh shouldn't emerge as one of the key centers for this push for uh, examining data partly because we have lots of companies, spin out companies, we've got the bioinformatics center, we've got everyone working on satellites. So there's many people that seem to be working on generating data sets from earth observation. I mean, in our own way, we generate data sets doing experiments on space station though perhaps less intensity of data production than say earth observation which gathers vast quantities of data all the time but yes I mean in summary I think for this to be a success there has to be a very strong economic strand in it and it's always good to have science that has direct applications to the the practical and economic environment and data is is a very good direction to take this all in
0: and we're chatting during the coronavirus outbreak, so obviously you are confined to your home, as we all are, and it must be very difficult for someone like you who's used to being in all sorts of unusual environments. Out of all the places that you've explored, I'm thinking Antarctica must be the most exciting, but what did you enjoy the most out <laughs> of all the the strange environments you found yourself in?
3: Yes, well, first, of course, I should point out that being in a house... Uh, not being able to go very far, is a little bit of a lunar and Mars experience. <laughs> You're confined in a habitat. The outside environment is potentially lethal. You can't really speak to that many people. And when you go out, you can only go out on short trips like you would do on, on the Moon and Mars. So I'm finding this a little bit of a uh, a a little bit of a snapshot into what it will be like living on the Moon and Mars. Uh, so it's not too dissimilar to what people are going to be putting up with. So if anyone out there it really is finding this is driving them up the wall. Um, they might not want to go and spend several months in a habitat <laughs> on the Moon or Mars. But anyway, sorry, that was a diversion from your question. <laughs> the most exciting place, I think, was Antarctica, actually. It's a wonderful place. It's a very, yeah, very alien world. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but you go there and there are no trees and the atmosphere is very clear. It's really difficult to get a sense of distance. Mm-hmm. You can stand on the continent, and the transantarctic mountains could be a small mound a few hundred metres away, or it could be a giant mountain range in the distance. So it's got a slightly ethereal dreamlike feel to it, actually Antarctica, as well as being very silent. And of course, you know, the science is very good to do, but, uh, and it's a, a great place to study life in extreme environments. But as a human experience, I found that one of the most fascinating places to go. There was one day where we were sitting, having a picnic with a French geophysicist who incidentally had hidden a bottle of wine and cheese in her rucksack, which we didn't know she had. And she pulled it out a month after we'd been in the deep field in uh, Alexander Island. And there we sat on this glacier, probably the only people on that same degree of latitude, eating a picnic on this glacier, drinking good French wine and eating uh, camembert, well mature camembert.
0: I have to ask you about Indonesia, because you were flying a microlight over the forest canopy trying to catch moths, and you crashed it.
3: Yes. When I was... Um, well, I had I mentioned this moth collection that I have from my grandfather. And so I was always interested in moths and it, it became a sort of an amateur interest in an amateur way. But anyway, getting moths down from the top of a tree is really difficult. You can put a bright light up and they'll fly down about halfway down the tree, take one look at you and then fly back up again. <laughs> so I was trying to think, how could you collect moths in canopies like rainforest canopies? Anyway, so I thought, well, one way to get them out of the trees would be to fly over the trees and, and catch them. So I designed this moth machine. It was a microlight aircraft with two lamps pointing down dambuster style so you could fly over the forest in the middle of the night and see your height above the trees. It had an ultraviolet lamp for attracting the moths and then a giant butterfly net underneath in a cone which you used to scoop up the moths as you flew over the rainforest. So I raised money from various companies. I got an engineering team together. This was during my PhD when I should have been doing my PhD. It actually <laughs> had nothing to do with my work. I'm actually surprised I got my PhD, but that's another story I did. Um, and I built the Barnes Wallace moth machine with this engineering team. And then I, I packaged it up, flew it out to Indonesia, and then we then I flew this thing over the forests for about a month in this expedition I organized. And then I was coming into land in a children's playground which we had sort of commandeered as a landing strip. Um, <laughs> So I won't even discuss the health and safety aspects, but this was the landing strip. I was coming into land and I clipped the top of a tree and it plowed into the ground nose first. It somersaulted three times. I actually don't remember what happened. I was not unconscious, but it happened so quickly. I didn't register it. And I just crawled out from under this thing. And so there I was, um, you know, lying there with my crushed up moth machine. And I have propeller to this day.
0: professor charles Cockell, there who i just loved speaking to an interesting guy has done some amazing things during his career and i love the way that he's brought biology and space together when not many other people were doing that just makes you realize how exciting space is i mean murray you must have been excited about space from a young age right
1: yes i really was actually massively excited by space and when i was in my early teens my parents got me a telescope for my christmas present a um four and a half inch newtonian uh, reflector to be precise and mm. so that uh, suddenly got me into the world of astronomy and uh, i really wanted to be an astronomer for some time and so when i was 16 i wrote to patrick moore do you remember him he, he was the guy who presented the sky at night oh, with yes. a monocle i so i wrote off to him and said i want to become an astronomer can you help me get a work experience placement
2: and did he and
1: uh and then one day i got a call at at home and it was my mum picked up and said came into the room and said Patrick Moore's on the phone for you no way so, so of course I just thought it's got to be one of my friends you know just it's a yeah. joke and uh, picked up the phone and said hello I
3: said, hello Murray is <laughs> Patrick Moore here I've got a few suggestions for you one at the Greenwich Observatory and one at Liverpool John Moore's University and he,
1: <laughs> he, said, he was amazing and he so he'd actually set up two alternative uh, opportunities for me. One looking more at sort of a like historical implementation and the one at, at Greenwich. And then the one at Liverpool John Moores was categorising supernovae events. I took the uh, the latter and spent a week up at Liverpool John Moores University when I was, yeah, like 15 or 16. I can't um,
3: believe
0: I've never then... heard this
1: story. This is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's, it's all coming out now. Uh, but then I don't know, became more obsessed with, with jungles, and of course, that's more related to Earth observation, but still utterly fascinated by the world of astronomy. And so that's why it's uh, an, another great reason to be here in Edinburgh with surrounded by such people as Colin
0: and Charles. So do you ever, go to the observatory. Charles. Did you ever go to the observatory and see what you can see?
1: I have been to the observatory a couple of times for lots like, sort of public events and so on. Um, and i've also been looking out for the um the meteor showers They're going through the uh, the lyrids at the moment so i do like to look up into the night sky and see what i can see
0: well we hope you've enjoyed your journey into deep space with us today please drop us a line and let us know what you think of the podcast he is at murray b collins and i am at kim McAllister on twitter
1: thanks for listening